This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Equity Bates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing, and we're going to get stuck into it today. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Rem. How are you? I'm very good, Bryce. Excited for this episode. We have just come off an interview with Maxwell Nee. He is the managing partner of the Oweno Wine and Whiskey Investment Fund and Oweno Wine Whiskey Investment Australia. Now, people who came to FinFest last year may be familiar with Oweno, spelled O-E-N-O. They are a global wine and whiskey investment giant. Yes. Two asset classes that I didn't know much about. Uh, We spoke to the co-founder and CEO of Oweno last year on the podcast. um, Michael Doerr. Michael Yes. Um, And it really opened our eyes to this world that unfortunately we we haven't tasted the assets yet. Yeah, well, I've tasted you have? wine and whiskey. No, but like the, the top one percent. Oh, no, no, no. These guys are uh, investing no, no, in no. like yeah, primo yeah. Yes. stuff. Yeah, I mean, Max talks about $10,000 bottles. So it's safe to say I may never. No, you definitely will. A $10,000 bottle. Well, no. <laughs> Like a thousand dollar bottle, maybe. Ma- maybe a thousand. I was about to say at your wedding, but that opportunity uh, is already been gone. We've had that. So we got a we got a nice bottle of whiskey at your wedding. Yes, that is not in the top one percent. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Nice. Anyway, the the good news is is that um we get a bit of an understanding on what it means to be in the top 1% of the wine market. Uh, and we really unpack the current state of the wine market as well as what's going on uh, in the whiskey market and some of the big brands that are you know, global leaders and some of the big markets as well. Uh, and then we close out with a discussion around actually how you can access these um, investments as a, I guess, a small time investor if you wanna diversify your portfolio into alternative assets. Now, uh, this episode is sponsored by Weno, and we do thank them for their support. They did support FinFest 2023, so a massive thanks. Our partners- 22. 22, sorry. Was it 2022? Wow, time's flying. Crazy. Anyway, our partners allow us to keep providing you guys with free content to help on your investing journey. So thank you to, uh, to Weno. And we should just say that nothing in this uh, episode is personal financial advice. Listen to the episode, do your own research. Any information is general advice only. We're not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Um, But with that disclaimer, let's get stuck in. Let's do it. Well, Maxwell, welcome to Equity Mates Investing Podcast. Thank you for having me, Bryce and Alec. Pleasure to be here. Now to kick off, it's a would you rather, and this one is in theme. Would you rather wine for the rest of your life or whiskey for the rest of your life? Ooh, tough question. I'd rather whiskey. You know, I'm a bit more whiskey than wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whiskey on the rocks. Wow. I don't think I've reached the stage in my life where I can hand on heart say that I enjoy whiskey. You still have it with Coke mixed every time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, don't tell me that. I don't, I don't, I don't. That's not true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had some good whiskeys, but they've always been given to me as a glass from someone's shelf that is something that is out of my price range and I admit you can understand how you could acquire the taste for it but it's something that I guess I haven't acquired a taste for 
yet from in, like a sit down and have whiskey on the rocks. Mm. What about you, Ren? What would you go? I no, nothing beats a boozy dinner with wine. So yeah. I think like I'm not replacing that with whiskey. So for that reason, wine Whis- for me. Wine, yeah. yeah, yeah, same. Rose on a hot summer's day, red on a cool summer's night. <laughs> I'll take it any day. <laughs> anyway, as we said in the intro, we're here to discuss the investing case for wine and whiskey with Maxwell, who is a managing partner at Weno Wine and Whiskey Investment Fund. And we're going to start with focusing on the wine market, Max. So can you help us understand what, what is the current state of the wine market at, on a global scale? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we talk about the wine market uh, for investment, you know, we're only talking about the top 1% of the market. So these are generally, rule of thumb is generally bottles, $50 or more, generally put you in about top 1% of the wine market. Not all the time, but but most of the time. And the top of the market, uh, the wine market has flattened out a little bit. You know, I think all markets have flattened out and they, they're in the process of consolidating, which is, you know, a little bit counterintuitive to think about it, but um, it's, it's, it's actually really good for, for new investors and reinvestors because um, you know that you're, you know, you're not buying into a bubble. You're buying into a consolidated, really steady bedrock of, of, of value rather than buying into a bubble like, you know, the AI bubble that's just happened. And, you know, it brings me back to that quote that I see all the time from Warren Buffett. You know, you want to buy when others are, uh, are fearful. You want to be greedy when others are fearful, but uh, be fearful when others are greedy. So, Max, you mentioned the top 1% of the wine market there. Help us understand what are some of the, I guess, like the real premium uh, wines that we we might be aware of. I imagine in Australia, Penfolds is one that often comes up. And then I imagine it's sort of like, you know, French and Italian wines and stuff like that. Give, it, give us some names or some things to Google. What are some of those, those primo wines that you're investing in? Yeah, well, you know, if you Google primo wines, they'll all come up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, in, you know, um, okay. So first of all, Penfolds as a brand is, you know, arguably in the top 10 wine brands in the world. Uh, probably top 100 brands of, of all kind, all types in the world. It's a very, very strong brand, especially in places like China. You know, Henschke's in there as well, uh, definitely in the top 1%. You know, if you want to fact check any of this stuff as well, the, the best place to Google them is actually Vervino. You know, Vervino actually oh, has yeah, a, yeah, a feature yeah. that says, yeah, it says top 1%, top 4%. I don't know what a, what it base that on. Maybe it's based on consumption or brand power or pricing, but but it's the, I would agree with most of them, basically. You know, when we talk about the top 1% of brands in the world, a lot of people think, yeah, it's got to be French, right? It's got to be French, it's got to be Penfolds. That's not always the case. You know, some of my favorite brands are like German, um, you know, Greek. You know, there's one brand that we have in our investment portfolio, which is from China, and they make a real kick-ass, leathery, smoky Chardonnay. Um, That's really great (laughs) with cheese, right? And, um, you know, there's, there's really good brands in... Spain as well that I can't pronounce, you know, even though I used to live there. But but it's uh, you know you won't know any of these brands. That that that's the whole point because they are so exclusive, limited, high end, and, and and all that sort of stuff. A bit like a bit like luxury watch brands. I couldn't couldn't think of a German wine that I've had to be honest. No, well, I've just come back from Greece. I I must say I cu- I couldn't get around some of their whites. Um, when you speak of the smoky leathery Chardonnay, that's 
that's what I'm after. And I, a lot of the Greek wine was very, that, that sort of fruity, Sav Blanc style of wine, which couldn't get around. But anyway, we're not here to discuss uh, price, wine. Price, price, price is showing off. You know? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's take that because, you know, when, when we talk about wine and we'll get to whiskey in a sec, like we all think about the wine we like to drink. And, mm, you know, Bryce mm. loves his leathery Oaky. whites and I, I love a full red, but we're, we're an investing podcast here and Oeno is an investment fund. Um, so, Flick it around from what we like to drink to what we should be putting our money in. What makes a good investment uh, when it comes to wine? What are the factors uh, from an investment standpoint that we're looking at? So there's a few, right? I'll give you a few high-level ones. So the first one is you want a worldwide brand. You know, so if you're in a restaurant in New York, you know, you're in a nice steak restaurant or you're in a restaurant in Sydney and you're in a restaurant in in Denmark and Copenhagen and you you'll generally see the same sort of syndicate of wines you know they'll have a French and Italian and Australian and Napa and and that's what we want to invest in you know we want to invest in things that are well known all around the world and they're being drugged and consumed all around the world you know because if we want the price of a wine to double you know the economics is pretty simple you know either demand needs to double or supply needs to half you know, and the beautiful thing about these assets is that supply, you know, gets to half at some point. It's just about timing that in the market and then, you know, you're in pretty good shape. So if you did that exercise, you know, go to a nice restaurant this evening, look at the wine lists. If you see, start to see the same types of wines on that restaurant and the next one, and the next one, we probably have investors in those, in those brands, uh, if not those, those exact bottles. So a worldwide brand is definitely one of them. You know, it's no use having a really good wine brand that, is really undervalued, so has a lot of upside, but it's only drunk in like South Africa, right? Because that market isn't big enough. You know, you want like a worldwide market. You want someone that has already done the hard work to put that brand into the far corners of Michelin star restaurants all around the world so that it's got that, you know, ever reaching, growing audience that's just constantly consuming and sucking out that supply. That's what you want. So, worldwide brand is one of them. Um, you know, limited supply is one of them. You know, it's no use investing in a brand waiting for supply to half when they're making 2 million bottles a year, you know, the same vintage, you want that to be well and truly under a hundred thousand bottles a year, sometimes even as low as, you know, 5,000 bottles a year or less than that. And you also want a track record, right? So you want, typically we invest in brands that are usually about 150 years old. Henschke is a perfect example. They're more than a hundred years old, right? And you want these brands because they have seen more, you know, economic instability, recessions, depressions, worldwide conflicts, you know, wars, sanctions, and the brands are still here, right? So there's the, the something that these companies are doing really, really well, right? You know, these companies are just like any others. They're just like Apple, you know, NVIDIA or whatever, just like their product is wine. And um, the last one, which is my favorite, is you want to invest in brands and producers that uh, I, you know, what I call are in the luxury economy. So you want them to be in that luxury bubble where they sort of cater to being a luxury good that's used for a special occasion or celebration. Who's the richest person in the world right now, right? It's it's Elon Musk last time I checked. But number two is Bernard Arnold at $200 billion, right? And he owns the largest luxury um, conglomerate in the world, LVMH, and he became number one last year 
you know, jumped over Bezos and Musk um, in like the worst economic year for the stock market, you know, the last 20 years. And he did that because the luxury market's in its own little bubble. So we love to invest in that bubble, you know, where there's like a cult following of uh, demand and supply and the consumer's constantly sucking up the supply. Mm. The supply is an interesting one because isn't the idea of investing to buy and hold? Like you want to hold that wine, not buy and then drink? Or are you trying to find wines that teeter on that sort of line of you know people are going to want to pay a lot of money to to drink this but also then if you happen to have it from an investment you can benefit from reduced supply yeah good question you know it's it's a, it, like all all you know breakthrough things are pretty counterintuitive right otherwise everyone would be doing it so let me put it to you this way so, so i'm writing a book right i'm writing a book called the wine investors playbook and you know the first chapter in the book is you know, buying the best is the worst thing that you can do, right? So what I mean by that is if you want outsized returns, you know, abnormal returns, you can't do what everyone else is doing, right? Because everyone else is, is doing the same thing. And um, usually what happens when people invest in wine, they stick to French and they usually stick to Bordeaux because Bordeaux is probably the most famous French region all around the world. And that's really great. But if no one ever consumes those wines, they aren't going to, increase in scarcity value, which, which means the price isn't going to go up. So sometimes buying the best wine is the worst thing that you can do because people never drink this stuff, right? So it's never consumed. Um, it never becomes even more rare. And also people use it as trophies. So people use it as like something that they'll never ever consume. So you want movement in a market. You know, you want traction. You want, um, you know, supply uh, just being sucked up so fast that the next batch that's released, you know, comes out at a higher price, right? So you want like a balance between, um, you know, very restricted supply and also uh, very, very consistent demand. So people constantly drinking and taking this off, off the market. Mm. Maxwell, that's why I only invest in Fruitulexia because <laughs> <laughs> the consumption rates are through the roof. It's a very Australian wine <laughs> you should take you should take it to your investment committee they'll um they'll like it you buy it in the in, in liters five liter containers <laughs> five yeah, liter containers yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's cheaper than water right i mean definitely more nourishing than water and there's a game called guna for <laughs> guna fortune where you would hang it from a hill's hoist and spin it around and if it came to you you'd take a swig from it anyway anyway oh, wow. uni, um, uni days hey so <laughs> so maxwell when we're talking about wine and uh, whiskey as well I, I guess the question becomes why the product you know the the finished wine rather than you know the picks and shovels uh of you know suppliers to the wine industry or the vineyards themselves so how do you think about the different sort of points in the supply chain and and why are you focused on the finished product yeah good question so you know a really wise hedge fund manager once told me um, who's got like 30 years experience in investing and in, um, equities and all that sort of thing, derivatives, commodities, uh, you know, only invest in where you have an advantage. So, you know, investing in a new vineyard is really tough because it basically comes down to the sales and marketing of that vineyard. You know, unless you happen to be investing something that's backed by a celebrity brand, you know, uh, like a celebrity's endorsing this, this new brand and all the existing brands that I would love to invest in um, don't take outside investment. You know, they're family owned, they want to stay family owned, either they sell out to a private equity fund or they don't sell out at all. 
but all the other brands like Henschke and stuff, yeah, they're still family owned. And, you know, a lot of these brands, whether they stay family owned, they don't optimize for profit. You know, they optimize for longevity. They optimize for the beauty and the craft. So I don't know how good their share price growth would be, even if you did invest in them, right? Because they're more optimizing for perfection rather than profit. So because of all that, usually from what I understand, capital gains is much faster and higher in um, in bottles rather than vineyards and, and less risk. Speaking of risks, what are some of the risks that, you know, you've given us the factors that, you know, that go into a, a good wine investment, but what are some of the risks that we should be thinking about when making uh, an investment in wine? It'd be ignorant not to consider fraud. Fraud happens in the wine industry. It's, it's, it's a perfect crime. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny story, but I always share that it's a perfect crime because, you know, some of this, these brands, no one's tasted this stuff. You know, like a $10,000 bottle, how often do you taste $10,000 bottle? If someone sold it to you, you wouldn't know, right? And then by the time you open a $10,000 bottle or even a $500 or $1,000 bottle, you're usually pretty drunk. So you're not going to remember anyway. <laughs> I've, I've actually <laughs> honestly yeah. thought about this if I was to... Yeah, I've thought about this. If I was to somehow be gifted a super yeah. expensive bottle, when you open it, like you don't want to be opening it when you come home from the pub being like, we need a nightcap. Or like, yeah. <laughs> but to Max's point, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so wine, you know, fraudsters get away with it all the time, right? And there's an estimated, no one really knows because you don't know this number, but there's an estimated about three billion dollars of fake wines in the market um, that I've read, and that's pretty significant considering the top one percent of wine is only about four billion dollars, three to four to five billion dollars. So that's you know four out of five right bottles loosely um could be fraudulent so you want to be you know i would never ever invest in wine uh without an advisor you know an advisor like the you know the really smart guys i work with here at aweno that can verify authenticate validate wine and whiskey um because you just don't want to run that risk right um and also you don't want to burn bridges where you try to sell to someone they say hey look this was fake like that that's you know, even worse position to be in. Um, so fake wine is definitely up there. Uh, so you want to work with someone that can authenticate for you. The next big risk is, yeah, the world stops drinking wine. You know, the world stops drinking wine. Impossible. <laughs> I, I We've been drinking wine for thousands of years. I don't think years. that's a big risk, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, wow, something major's happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, well, uh, but it's a risk. You know, if, if, if that did happen, then the price would well and truly start to go backwards because less people, you know, there's less desire, less demand or that sort of thing. And the sanity check for that one for me is, you know, have you ever been to Dan Murphy's and seen your favorite brand of wine, vodka, you know, anything consistently go backwards in price. Yeah, yeah. So when you start to see that, then something's wrong. Um, but, you know, I haven't seen that yet. All right, well, let's turn to the market for whiskey because you're the whiskey guy. You said at the start you'd rather whiskey for the rest of your life. So help us understand the, the current state of the whiskey market. Yeah, cool. I'll, I'll share some numbers because I've got some numbers. So when we say whiskey, you know, not all whiskey is equal. You know, there's there's different pillars of whiskey and the, the three main ones are you know scotch irish and american fireball as well. the, the three biggest markets yeah <laughs> fireballs, right? so scotch whiskey um exports was up by 37 percent last year you know up by more than a third you know and that's often going to markets where people are willing to pay more than if it was drunk locally so it's not just 
there's more bottles going out the door, there's more bottles of people willing to pay a higher price. So that's just, you know, a ridiculous amount of demand. And I can tell you that A, Scotland is a small country and B, it's very, very hard to start a new distillery. So whilst demand is up, you know, 37%, you know, internationally, supply is not up 37%, right? So that, that's the imbalance that keeps, keeps uh, pulling the price up. Irish whiskey is estimated to grow by a compounded rate of return of about 7.44% over the next five years, right? So 7%, 7.5% compounding every year and, you know, supply is the same. You know, supply barely moves, if, if, if at all, right? You know, it might, it might grow by 1% a year, but not as, nowhere near as much as demand. And then American, you know, American is also growing at about, estimated about 5.4% compounding. You know, and that, that's on an already big number, you know, talking about more than 15 billion, which is the American whiskey market, right, uh, US dollars. And that's growing by, you know, five and a half, just under five and a half percent with supply, you know, not, not being able to catch up to that. So all the indicators are pointing towards that the same thing is happening and it's going to keep happening, which is um, there's not enough people making the stuff and more than the people want to drink it, which therefore pushes up the price. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, a little bit about the performance there. I, I guess let's turn to what makes a good whiskey investment. You put your analyst hat on and you look at it. Obviously, some of the factors are going to be similar to the wine market, but is there anything different um, or anything additional that we're looking for uh, when we're uh, analysing what whiskies are going to do well? Yeah, there is actually. So in the whiskey world, you can blend. So winemakers usually don't blend wine from other brands, especially if they're in the you know top 1%. But in the whiskey world, it happens all the time. So for example, some of the best investments you can make in the whiskey world uh, is when it's, it's always when it's, it's still in the, in the barrel, right? So whiskey stops aging. So it stops increasing in value once it's been, um, uh, once it's been bottled. So it's, it's when you, you want to keep it in, in its cast in the barrel. And um, some of the best investments are the ones that could be used in blends with multiple casts. You know, so if you think about it as like the crude oil of whiskey that's then sold to, you know, um, 15 other different brands, that's who you want to invest in. You want to invest in the crude oil supplier. So in America, for example, one of the best, you know, crude oil suppliers so to speak, is called uh, MGP. And um, it's very, very hard. Like you've got to be pretty much a wholesaler like, like us to get your hands on their stock. And, um, you know, their stock, their crude oil, so to speak, is used in about, you know, at least 16 other brands. So it's a bit like investing in a venture capital fund where instead of just focusing on one startup, you've got all the concentration risk of that one startup. You throw in a fund that then invests in 16 other brands you know so you get the the upside and the lift and the drag plus the diversification across 16 other brands so that's a sweet spot for me in uh in whiskey investing now uh we were going to ask you about some of the leading whiskey markets around the world and, and you mentioned three the, the us island and scotch which is scotland I, I always love how particular the europeans are when it comes to their um what you need to meet a certain qualification like for scotch whiskey to be scotch you have to be produced entirely in scotland have no other added substances except for water barley or other grain yeast 
occasionally caramel, just occasionally. <laughs> you have to be oak aged for at least three years within Scotland. Scotland. <laughs> it's just they're um they they can be I guess quite finicky. Um, but you know that is how they are premium, and I guess that lends itself to the investment case. Um, but outside of those three markets that you mentioned, are there any? Up and coming markets that might be uh, making their way into the Ueno portfolio, and I'm thinking particularly here, maybe Australia, maybe a state uh, just off the the coast of Australia, Tasmanian whiskey, maybe. Uh, how, how does Australia go, and are there any other markets we should be watching? Well, this is a really good educational podcast. So I didn't know that Tasmania was not a part of Australia. But <laughs> no, sorry, it is. It is just not on the mainland, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the the notable, the really notable ones that are punching well and truly above their weight. You know, there's a brand in Taiwan called Cavalan. If you go through like Singapore Airport or even any of the European airports, you'll find it there. That's actually from Taiwan, and that's a real kick-ass, you know, um, punching above its weights uh, scotch. There's also some good scotch coming out of uh, Canada. Uh, no, not scotch, sorry, I shouldn't say that. There's one whiskey that I know of coming out of Canada that's they age the whiskey in barrels outside rather than inside because they want, like, that natural sort of air and, you know, fermentation and outside exposure. And these barrels are aged uh, under the Northern Lights in uh, Saskatchewan in Canada. So, you know, the, the, the whiskey's been, you know, the story is that they've been touched by angels as, as they've been aging. In <laughs> okay. Alone, right? okay. That, that, feels, yeah. that feels like a bit of marketing uh, yeah. spin, I must say. <laughs> yeah, aged under yeah, the, but, aged under you know, the Southern is, Cross. Is, is, <laughs> it's, under the Southern Cross, yeah, you know, we should, we should start a... Started a distillery called that, Southern Cross. Oh, too good. Well, Max, to close out, for any of the equity mates community that are listening, and and you've mentioned a couple of times here that, that you know, a, a lot of the wines and whiskies that are of that investment grade are often difficult to access as small time investors if you don't have the wholesale, uh, you know, ability or you just don't have the contacts. It's a, you know, industry of who you know and, and you know, having the relationships directly with a lot of the growers and producers. So when I offer a, a private portfolio option for, for retail investors, can you just talk us through like what a typical portfolio might look like for a beginner investor in, in wine and whiskey on the platform and, and just what, we could, what you could expect um, if, if someone was to sort of sign up with you guys? Yeah, yeah, um, good question. So first thing is we would say look, your time horizon has to be five years or more. And then we look at your budget, right? So let's say your budget is $10,000. What we would then do is we then say, you know, do you, you know, the, the, the number one question that we always get asked is, if we buy stuff that I also like to drink, could I, could I sell some and drink some? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and the answers, the answers, the question's always asked and the answer's always yes, right? Um, so the first thing we'd understand is, okay, you look, do you want the, do you want to focus purely on financial return or do you want something that's a bit of fun and that you, you know, you want to drink some as well? Cause we've got to factor that in. And let's say you want pure financial return, right? For 10 grand, you know, I would want to diversify you across uh, whiskey and wine um, because, you know, whiskey appreciates at a pretty steady rate, you know, in the past it's appreciated about 
around about 20% per annum, uh, depending on the ones that you pick, obviously. But that is averaged out over four or five years or more. It's, it's, it's pretty common to get those numbers. But then you also want a bit of wine exposure as well, because sometimes a bottle of wine can, can double in value within one year. You know, one of the wines we have in our ideal portfolio is a French Burgundy um, made by uh, La Romani Conti, which is like the Michael Jordan of, of wine. And um, their 2009 vintage, you know, doubled in price last year. So, you, you know, you want to, you don't want to shut yourself off from that happening as well to just, you know, pick up your portfolio. And then what we would do is we'd then, uh, you know, you'd secure your portfolio with a deposit, right? And then we'd go out and buy the best stuff for you at the best price. And price is really important, you know, because you can invest in wine whenever you like. You know, you could go to Dan Murphy's, just go straight to the top shelf, you go to the local wine store, whiskey store, go to the top shelf and just buy it. But if you're overpaying, and you're not buying it at a wholesale price, you know, through a wholesale distributor, you, you're not really investing, you're just, you're just sort of collecting, right? Because for someone to be able to buy that off you at a higher price, even though you've already overpaid for it, that's really difficult, you know, even for us to try to achieve that for you. So we would secure you, you know, the ideal portfolio based on your goals and we'd secure it at the best price possible. We're able to absorb your storage and insurance costs as well. And the price of your investment because we've got you know enormous economies of scale the place that we store our wine and whiskey at uh it's in london it's essentially a free port so free ports where goods uh like wine whiskey art all that sort of stuff is kept pre-sales and alcohol tax so it's like a tax-free zone so they can then be sold to any country you know really really easily instead of you know double dipping on importing and sales tax and then we would hold it for you until you're ready to sell. Nice. Wow. Sounds pretty straightforward. <laughs> well, Max, we will put a link to the, uh, I guess, landing page for the Weno Private Investment Fund. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if anyone's interested, it's for a minimum of 5000 But that comes with a, a bunch of... Um, I guess support from Weno, um, it comes with an account manager and you sort of really get taken through the process as you've just alluded to there. But that does bring us to the end. A massive uh, thank you for joining us on Equity Mates again and appreciate the support. And yeah, it's been great to understand a little bit more about the wine and whiskey market. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Amazing. Thanks, guys. Cheers. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.